Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Nobel Prizes were announced this week, and Bay Area maximalists had to be excited. We have two winners in our area, Carolyn Bertozzi in chemistry and John Clauser in physics. We're going to spend the hour talking about their science and taking your questions for these eminent scientists. Bertozzi won her share of the prize for her groundbreaking work at the boundary of chemistry and biology. She's one of only a handful of women to win the chemistry prize. Clauser, for his part, won his Nobel for his work on quantum entanglement that his advisors at Columbia and Berkeley told him would ruin his career in physics. Their stories are coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are few moments that it's more fun to imagine than winning a Nobel Prize. Usually awarded years or even decades after the work, it is the ultimate capstone for a life dedicated to research. So let's just revel in that to start the show. Joining us, we've got two scientists who won Nobel Prizes last week. Carolyn Bertozzi is a chemistry professor at Stanford University and winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here with you. (laughs) We've also got John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics. Congratulations to you too, John. Thank you. Uh, Carolyn, for you, I have read that you've been one of the front runners for the Nobel in chemistry for years. So be honest, were you kind of expecting it? Uh, No, honestly, (laughs) I don't think anybody would expect something like this, but it's true when when your friends keep emailing you the night before, you can't help but wonder if the phone's going to ring. And usually it doesn't. Yes. Right. Yeah. Until it does, it it definitely does not. Um, John Clauser, for you, it seems like it was a slightly bigger surprise, although the work obviously had been foundational for uh, uh, quite a long time. Uh, Totally a surprise. Uh, The uh, I uh, received 
the Wolf Prize in 2010 with uh, the same group, uh, same laureates, uh, Alan Aspect and Anton Zeilinger, as I did in 2011. Uh, and the, the Wolf Prize uh, from the state of Israel uh, claimed that it was a stepping stone for the uh, mm -hmm. Nobel. Uh, I was nominated in 2011, and uh, but nothing really happened. And after a while, I uh, uh, sort of uh, gave up any uh, uh, <laughs> aspirations or hope, and I was totally asleep, uh, uh, left uh, totally unshaven, and, and um, house was a mess. And I didn't had no idea that the place would be filled with with uh, journalists, <laughs> photographers. And, uh, so I, it definitely was a surprise to me. <laughs> wow. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the science, Dr. Klaus. I know we've only got you for uh, half an hour, so let's start there. Uh, when you were doing this work um, in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, quantum mechanics had become firmly entrenched, but there were still some disputes, right? And that's kind of where this work entered in. Well, the the, uh, the primary disputes were uh, between Bohr and Einstein, actually Bohr Schrodinger uh, together, uh, and uh, oh, I mean Einstein and, and Schrodinger uh, versus uh, Niels Bohr. This was uh, back in the uh, mid '30s, and they uh, they both uh, Einstein and, and Schrodinger believe that. Quantum mechanics was uh, an incomplete theory that the randomness you observe is due to additional variables that are unseen. Um, it, whereas uh, Niels Bohr argued that it was totally built into the theory and that there's no way to determine uh, what was actually happening to create all of this. Hmm. And that uh, their arguments uh, were left uh, uh, kind of at a stalemate, uh, most of the physics community decided, well, obviously, Einstein was wrong and Bohr was right. Uh, no longer uh, quantum mechanics uh, uh, does, is, is a perfectly good theory. Uh, but there was no, no way of distinguishing the, the points of view. Then in 1964, uh, John Bell wrote a paper that uh, about a purely mathematical paper uh, suggesting uh, he's a, a theorist at CERN, mm -hmm. and he uh, noticed that yes, indeed, they did lead to different uh, predictions. So, uh, several um, uh, some of my associates, Abner Shimoni, uh, Mike Horn, as well. I was still a graduate student, uh, and they hold. We got together, wrote a paper, suggest proposing an actual experiment. Uh, to test the, that, in fact, yes, the, the two points of view led to very different predictions. And so then when I was a postdoc at uh, uh, Cal Berkeley uh, here uh, in the physics department, I, I got to do an ex uh, decided I w wanted to do and uh, succeeding in, in talking to uh, Charlie Towns and uh, Gene Cummins, Howard Shugart, physics department to let me uh, do it. I worked with uh, Stu Friedman, graduate student, and did the first uh, experiment. Unfortunately, found that uh, Einstein was wrong and that uh, Bohr was right. So, Unfortunately, because you were, you had wanted Einstein to be right. You wanted to 
have that be, that debate be settled in his favor. Very much. Well, I, you know, like I say, it's it's like going to uh, to, uh, to a horse race. You you want um, a given horse to win, uh, but I really didn't know what the result would be when I did the experiment, uh, and we got a very solid result. Uh, but uh, so uh, <laughs> that was uh, what we published in, in '72. Uh, then a group at Harvard decided had was doing a competing experiment, which they never published. So I said, "Well, gee, maybe I could uh, did something wrong. I had to repeat their version, see uh, if I uh, duplicate their result. I couldn't. Uh, went on, so I ended up doing four ex different experiments there at uh, uh, Cal Berkeley, mm -hmm. and uh, all of them uh, showed." Sorry, Einstein, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you tell us a little bit about spooky action at a distance? This is kind of the phenomenon that you were researching back then. Um, well, okay. Basically, uh, what my experiment uh, uh, and subsequent experiments have, have shown is that the... Uh, is, is it... You can't uh, put information in a box. And if you have, for example, uh, two uh, two uh, particles, uh, they you can share a single bit of information between the two of them. And so that in order to, to determine that bit of information, you really need to measure both of them. And the two particle, the grand surprise on all of this, is that no matter how far apart and how quickly you you, you measure one relative to the other, uh, that the that bit is still shared between the two uh, the the two particles independently. This is not just simply a question of say you had uh, a pair of cards, the king and an ace, uh, that were dealt uh, to you and a partner. And if you look at one, if you find that you have the ace, you know he has the king. The correlation is much stronger than you would expect if the uh, particles had an uh, objective independent uh, reality themselves. Uh, it is, and so that is somehow built into the system. Um, I personally do not understand it uh, to this day. <laughs> But uh, th that's what what experiment appears to show. Yeah, so interesting. And of course, it became kind of the a, a foundational part of what we now call quantum computing, right? People actually trying to use this to encode uh, information in in new and and really possibly transformative ways. Well, the that was one of the things that that uh, became important. The uh, this sort of became the foundation uh, of uh, quantum information theory. Probably the, the first and more important one was, at, which is now practical, is quantum encryption. Uh, that one could use this fact to, uh, in if you send a pair of particles to two people uh, and they independently analyze it in various ways, you can set up a scheme whereas you can uh, uh, communicate quite uh, uh, secretly a, a, each bit of information, so you can set up a key for for doing uh, uh, sending uh, uh, encrypted code. Uh, now, 
China has a uh, satellite that they use exactly this. And the experiment, uh, their by experiment uh, with Stu Friedman in uh, 72 uh, had almost exactly the same configuration that that uh, satellite uh, has. Uh, they send a pair of particles to two ground stations from a satellite. So the, the two photons are, are entangled uh, thousands of kilometers apart. Mm -hmm. And so, so quantum encryption was the, was the first uh, real application. Mm -hmm. Quantum computing has come later. That's, I suspect that that's gonna take uh, much longer mm -hmm. to um, implement, uh, but I am not an expert in that field. Yeah. We're talking with two Nobel Prize winning scientists, John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics, and Carolyn Bertozzi, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, professor at uh, Stanford University. What questions do you have for these Nobel Prize winning scientists? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, Dr. Bertozzi, wanted to ask you about sort of how you think of the big problem that you were working on that you've been awarded this Nobel Prize for? Well, first of all, thank you uh, for having us. And John, I really enjoyed hearing that um, overview of your <laughs> award-winning work directly from the source. That's really a, a real treat for me. Um, as for me, um, what I was recognized for was inventing a type of chemistry, a type of chemical reaction, um, where the technical term for it is bioorthogonal chemistry. And basically that means chemistry that you can actually perform in the environment of like biological systems. And that includes like biological molecules in a tube or living cells in a cell culture dish, or even in like whole organisms, including human patients. And when I say human patients, um, that implies that we think there are important applications for bioorthogonal chemistry to make new kinds of medicines for people. Oh, man. And we are going to talk more about bioorthogonal chemistry, all of its applications. The science went into your big win in, uh, this year for the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Again, what questions do you have for these Nobel Prize winning scientists? The number is 866-733-6786. Stay tuned for more right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Nobel Prize winning scientist John Clauser and Carolyn Bertozzi. Uh, Dr. Bertozzi, you know, you went alongside um, some other scientists for, who came up with something called click chemistry. You won for bioorthogonal chemistry. Is there a relationship between those? Like, how, does, how did that uh, work in, in your mind? Well, um, the other two laureates are Professors Barry Sharpless from the Scripps Institute and Professor Morten Meldahl from the Carlsberg Institute in Denmark. Um, and they worked on a type of chemistry they called click chemistry. And it, there's some common features between that chemistry and the chemistry we developed, which we had branded bioorthogonal chemistry. Mm-hmm. And for me, the, uh, the backstory was um, back in the 1990s, when I first started my laboratory back then as a new assistant professor at UC Berkeley, um, I had an interest in developing chemical strategies to study biological molecules in living systems. And in living systems, what I mean by that is in cells and mm-hmm. organisms, you know, laboratory organisms, and also in people. Um, and so the motivation was um, that we thought we could learn a lot more about biology if we could actually study molecules in the biological system in their like native habitat. Hmm. And one way to do that was to try to attach little chemical light bulbs to molecules of interest so we could literally see them in microscopes and follow them around. And then we also had ideas for using chemistry to direct medicines to the right types of cells and keep them away from the wrong types of cells. Um, And this is really important for diseases like cancer um, because we all know that when you treat a cancer patient with a chemotherapy, that medicine kills the cancer cells, um, but also kills your own other cells and makes you sick. Um, so if you could figure out a way to attach those medicines just to the cancer cells and keep them away from other healthy cells, you'd have a medicine that was much better tolerated. So these were some ideas. And, and we thought we could maybe tackle those problems by inventing chemical reactions that you could actually perform in cells or in animals or in people. And that was a bit of a maverick idea at the time uh, because conventional chemical reactions are invented with the assumption that you're going to do the chemistry in like glassware. Right, clean environment, not inside a cell with all these other chemicals around. Precisely, yeah. I mean, chemistry in a glass flask is chemistry where you control all of the components of that reaction, right? And everyone has seen on TV you know, the scene of the chemistry laboratory with things bubbling and stirring. And, and, and that's the typical chemistry laboratory. That's even my laboratory. <laughs> um, but if, if the idea is to actually do the chemistry in very messy, uncontrolled environments, like in the body of a patient, um, the chemistry has a lot more demands put upon it. So that was our motivation. And we were developing chemistries that we thought maybe you could do inside animals. And we even had a few uh, that we published on. Um, But one of the problems we were trying to solve is how fast the reactions go, because if a reaction takes too long to make the product that you want, there's, you're missing a lot of biological processes that might happen on a faster timescale. So even though we had some bioorthogonal reactions in our pockets, by the early 2000s, um, we were focusing on how to make them go as fast as possible. And that's where we had a bit of a touch point with the other laureates who were developing the so-called click chemistries. And 
initially they were making those chemistries for other purposes. Um, but one of the great features of those chemistries is they were really fast. <laughs> and, um, and we watched that and we even tried to use some of their click chemistries in our biological settings, but they didn't work well. And the reason was that those click chemistries required um, a component called copper and that's a metal and copper is toxic to cells and to you know people mm -hmm. <laughs> at least at the levels that one would need to use the copper for these chemistries so so even though the click chemistries you know attracted our eye they really didn't solve our problem but they got us on a different path and we ended up figuring out how to make a click chemistry that didn't require the copper. And that turned out to be one of the useful bioorthogonal chemistries. So that's where we, you know, the Venn diagram between bioorthogonal chemistry and click chemistry had this touch point. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Um, let's get to some callers. Obviously, one of the things we love about this kind of show is people get to ask Nobel laureates uh, their own questions. So let's go to uh, Mahender in Fremont. Welcome, Mahender. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question for Professor regarding the quantum entanglement measurement. So basically my question was like, when you uh, are making measurements of two particles, which are like uh, separated light years apart, let's say, and, and when you're making instantaneous measurements, how do we exchange information and find out like, uh, because like there's no way to uh, like get that information uh, like faster than speed of light. So mm -hmm. uh, how do we make that measurement? Yeah, really interesting question. Thanks, Mahender. Dr. Clauser. Well, that's uh, reasonably straightforward. Um, basically, well, what we did was we just had wires connecting the two distant detectors uh, uh, 30 feet apart or so, and and brought them together and checked to see that the signals when they, uh, when they arrived uh, at the same time uh, came from the same pair, uh, pair of particles. Uh, if they're, as you suggest, uh, very far apart, that's uh, also quite possible to do. Um, is you just simply record, you have a clock going and you record uh, the results of experiment on, on each particle uh, or each you have two clocks one on each observer uh, who uh, who records what he sees at a given time and then you bring all those records to, uh, uh, together and you compare the results at the uh, all at the same time and say aha that's a given uh, pair, pair of particles and you can use those uh, at, after the fact uh, to uh, determine uh, what the the joint measurement of the of the pair was, uh, hmm. you, you clearly can't do it simultaneously. Now there was an experiment by uh, Nicholas Giesen at the University of Geneva where he had a truly amazing ex uh, set of experiments, where he found that he could make had the two. Uh, observers uh, were moving relative to each other, and he found that he could have one measurement uh, before the other one from the each one's point of view, so that the other one, uh, if there was a some sort of a communication, uh, this was totally impossible for one to uh, to affect the other. Is that each one did the uh, uh, 
made his measurement uh, before the other one had uh, made the, uh, the measurement. And he still found this very strong correlation, which is a, a, a truly great mystery. But uh, actually, did, after the, measuring the stuff after the fact is, the, is, I think, the answer to your question. Yeah. You know, when you think about experiments like that or your own, given your background in physics, like, what do you think is going to happen with physics going forward? Like, do you see us on a path to getting closer to kind of the ultimate nature of reality? Or do you feel like we've actually gotten farther away from it? Um, hard, uh, <laughs> like as uh, Yogi Berra uh, uh, said, it ain't easy making predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> uh, and I am no better than anybody else at that. Um, uh, this, what I, my own personal feeling is that one of the things that at least in, the, in science that this will do is that this, uh, understanding finally of entanglement will explain a little bit why quantum mechanics and general relativity are very difficult to uh, uh, to unify. These are the two two of the more important uh, theories of uh, underlying uh, founda present foundations of, of physics. Uh, the current applications of entanglement, uh, quantum computing, uh, that I think is relatively far away. But the, uh, well, like, like I said before, the uh, quantum encryption is now a, a very uh, an actual reality. Let's bring in uh, one last card. We know you've got to uh, to take off in just a couple minutes. So, uh, Robert in San Francisco, you get our uh, last question for Dr. Clauser. Hi. Good morning. Uh, excellent program. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, so my question is, um, physics uh, has been assuming that the fundamental reality of the universe is energy. But uh, what if we borrow from the major religions, which uh, have been proposing that the fundamental reality of the universe is consciousness? Uh, would investigating along those lines, uh, because consciousness, the speed of consciousness is infinite, much faster than the speed of light. Would investigations along those lines come up with a solution for quantum entanglement? Thanks, Robert. Uh, Dutch Clouser, a little, uh, little outside of your normal physics realm, but uh, well, if you want to take a crack at it. The, not quite. Uh, consciousness has, well, has been proposed as part of uh, the uh, measurement process. This is a famous paper by Jean uh, Wigner uh, that proposed that the consciousness was uh, intimately related to uh, becoming, making a result, uh, an experimental result become uh, infinite. And he, uh, Wigner proposed that we have a uh, that he had a friend, sort of, uh, sort of like Schrodinger's cat, uh, where he put the, the friend in a box and, and the friend observed the result. And then later on, he asked the, the friend, well, what was it like to be in a superposition? The uh, uh, friend said, no, no, no big deal. I was, it, the result was really uh, one way or the other. It was actually very definite. Um, Bruce Rosenblum at UC Santa Cruz wrote a, a book on this, uh, 
the quantum enigma. One of the big problems that I have with all of this, uh, with uh, trying to bring in consciousness, is it's not clear we have a clear definition of what constitutes consciousness. Uh, there is Turing's definition of consciousness, uh, or uh, whether you have a sentient being, and what, uh, whether you ask it a question, can you tell whether or not it's a human being or uh, a machine? But I, before you get a clean definition of what constitutes consciousness, it's very difficult to do any uh, uh, actual uh, experimental science to determine whether or not uh, consciousness has any effect. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, enlightening us on, on your work, and congratulations again. Okay, thank you. Have a great uh, next event. Um, Dr. Bertozzi, um, I want to talk a little bit. I mean, your work is extremely technical, and it, it maybe like it's difficult even for people to understand what modern chemistry is about. Do you see that? Like, how do you see its relationship to sort of what people do when they're just beginning to learn chemistry and doing, you know, individual reactions with their pipettes in the different wells? Like, do you do you see? Is there a real relationship between what people do in their basic chemistry that we all learn and sort of what you're doing in your lab as a Nobel Prize winner? Oh, sure. You know, at the end of the day, um, it's all about building molecules that have a structure that's designed for a certain function. And that's kind of a universal feature of all forms of chemistry. Um, in fact, you know, one of the great cool things about chemistry that attracted me to the field is the fact that chemists have this superpower, which is they can invent and create new forms of matter. Hmm. So when we make molecules in my lab, you know, that's a new form of matter that we invented and we get to study it and understand its properties. And we design it so that it has a certain function. And when it works, we're all really excited because <laughs> we're sort of molecular engineers at that level. So I think, you know, what people learn in their high school chemistry classes is, you know, the kind of baby steps that you need ultimately to create new forms of matter that can perform new functions. You know, when you say you're designing new molecules, is that mostly trying things out, bench science, kind of measuring what you're able to create? Or is it mostly now like modeling on computers and figuring out these pathways ahead of time and then trying to execute them? Well, computers are becoming increasingly more important research tools for chemists, but most of what we have done has not been intensive in terms of computer work. Um, what we did was we thought about the basic principles of chemistry and how the shapes and compositions of molecules govern their reactivities and their functions. So it was really, you know, quite intuitive the way that we approach making molecules and designing them. And in terms of what it actually looks like on the ground to do this kinds of research, you know, my, my students and my postdoctoral fellows who are the people with their hands in the laboratory, mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll come in. They'll set up chemical reactions in glassware, right? The kind you see on TV. Mm -hmm. They'll make molecules that they designed so that they could do something in a biological setting. Then they'll take those molecules and they'll mix them together with cells or they'll take you know, a, a laboratory organism and put the chemical on the organism and see what happens next. So they're kind of doing a mix of chemistry and biology. But again, the goal was to invent the right chemistry 
so that we could cast a spotlight on certain types of biology and understand biology better. So interesting. You know, when you're trying to come up with an entirely new category of chemistry, like bioorthogonal chemistry, how do you actually do your thinking? Like, are you sketching shapes of molecules on paper? Are you just like going for a run and those molecules are rotating in your mind? Are you like, what? what is the nature of that? I'm just trying to imagine, you know, I've seen like coders at work, you know, and the, yeah. the different people think about it in different ways. What, what is it like for you? There's a lot of sketching. Yes. Um, if you walked through my lab, you would see every every student has a desk and a bench a laboratory bench, and they have a chemical fume hood with a glass you know, door on it that we raise and lower. And every surface is covered with sketches. Mm. So they're, they're writing structures of molecules and sketching out reactions. And I mean, there's a lot of, it's very visual. And the better you get at doing this kind of chemistry, the more you're able to visualize those molecules in your head so that when you are taking that run, yes, you might, in your mind's eye, you might have molecules spinning around in your head and thinking about their shapes and their structures. But yes, the kind of chemistry we do is, is very visual mm. and also very intuitive, but based on a core set of principles where you know that if you make a molecule that has this shape and this structure, it should have this type of reactivity. And to get the reactivity to be bioorthogonal, the first step intellectually is to take inventory of all the kinds of chemicals that exist in a biological setting. Like in our bodies, there's thousands of chemicals. They're natural mm -hmm. chemicals. They're within us. And then we try to design chemicals that are not at all related to what's within us, would not interact or interfere with anything that's within us and just would live a parallel life, right? Hmm. So the chemistry has a life that's entirely independent of all the other chemicals in your body. And that really is the, the core challenge of bioorthogonal chemistry is to find those chemistries that exist on a plane of their own. So interesting. So that's all the, all the proteins, all the sugars, the DNA, the RNA, all those things. You've got to imagine what's not going to react with those things. It's so, so interesting. We're talking with Carolyn Bertozzi. She's a professor at Stanford University, maybe sending some people uh, uh, scuttling to sign up for organic chemistry. She just won the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Uh, earlier, we were joined by John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics. What questions do you have for Carolyn Bertozzi about the future of chemistry, biochemistry? Here's your chance to get an answer from a Nobel Prize winning scientist. The phone number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Carolyn Bertozzi, professor at Stanford University, and she just won the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. I want to talk to you about what it's like to use the tools that you've invented to look inside living cells or on the surfaces of living cells. Can you describe the moment when you're able to really start to do that? Like, what does it tell you about what's happening uh, in this, these biological systems? Well, you know, I'll tell you that there was a biological motivation um, that even preceded the development of the very first bioorthogonal reaction from my lab back in the late 1990s. And that was my own personal interest in the biology of the sugar molecules that coat the surfaces of cells. Mm. And for the listeners who didn't know that, let me tell you, (laughs) all of your cells have a sugar coating, but the sugars are really complicated in their structures. And it had been discovered over the previous half century or so that the structures of those sugars kind of define the identity of the cell and allow the cell to communicate with other cells in your body. So it's a fascinating biological function that they fulfill because they're essentially like the language that cells use to communicate with each other. And things go sideways um, in cancer where the sugars change And no one really understood why they change, how they change, and nobody could actually visualize those changes in the human body. You could only see those changes if you took out the cancer tissue and ground up the cancer to bits and pieces. And and so, you know, reading, I was reading about all of that back when I was in graduate school and as a postdoctoral fellow at UCSF back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And I felt I was so frustrated because there was no good technology to actually visualize those sugars on live intact cells or inside organisms or humans. There just, there wasn't a way to do that. Whereas by contrast, there were some pretty powerful technologies to visualize other kinds of biological molecules, like the ones you mentioned, proteins, DNA, right? We had really good technologies for that in the nineties, but there was, there was no comparable technology for these sugars. And yet there was this fascinating biology underlying them. Mm. So, you know, when I started my own research lab at Berkeley, the, one of my driving forces was we need a technology to visualize those sugars. And that was kind of the motivating question behind the development of bioorthogonal chemistry. And we figured out how to put you know, a bioorthogonal chemical into the sugars and then attach a, a light bulb, like a probe molecule, so we could see mm. that sugar and we could do that chemistry of the attachment in living cells and animals. So, so the bioorthogonal chemistry had a very specific purpose for studying these sugars in the early days. But once we started publishing on the chemistry, lots of other labs realized it could be useful for all kinds of other biological experiments beyond sugars. But that is kind of the origin story. Yeah. And I just want to clarify for people, too, if they're thinking about sugar as like sucrose, you're talking about much more complex chemicals, some of which are attached to proteins and other things, right? I mean, these are, uh, this is not just like your cells are covered with, you know, sucrose. 
That's right. Um, the kind of sugar that you eat, which is sweet, and that you maybe put in your coffee this morning, that's like a simple sugar. Those are like, like table sugar. And that type of sugar gives you energy and it's sweet and tasty. But then it turns out that your body builds much more complicated sugars where simple, lots of simple sugars get stitched together to make these long chains. And the analogy I like to use is, I like to use vegetation metaphors when I describe mm -hmm. these cell surface sugars, because th the way that they coat the cell is very similar to the way that plants and trees coat the planet earth, where there's a lot of complexity in the structures. There's tall ones and short ones and stiff ones and flexible ones. And, um, and, and they're important in biology, and, and, but not much is known about them compared to the other types of biological molecules that are out there. So interesting. Well, I will wait for your Nobel Prize win in biology, and then we can talk even more about that. <laughs> um, let's go to uh, Gaurav in Dublin with a question for you. Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call, and thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Uh, my question for Dr. Bertozzi is that uh, since you spoke about targeted medicines to you know, target cancer cells and whatnot, can we use bioorthogonal chemistry to target molecules across the, across the blood-brain barrier in a potentially opening a new avenue for treating these really hard-to-treat neurodegenerative diseases? Mm. Good question. This is an incredibly insightful question. Um, so... I think you know the, the problem that you're getting at is um, when medicines go into the human body, whether they go in through like a, a pill or whether they're injected you know, into our veins, um, those medicines generally do have a hard time getting from circulation into the brain. And the blood-brain barrier is one of the most frustrating barriers for chemists who are trying to make medicines to treat neurodegeneration or psychiatric diseases or anything where the problem is in the brain and you have to get the medicine there. So, you know, we and others have thought about whether bioorthogonal chemistry could be used to make different kinds of medicines that can breach barriers in a different way. So for example, um, one thing we've contemplated is making medicines where, you know, maybe the medicine itself wouldn't cross the blood brain barrier as many medicines don't, but maybe you could split the medicine into two smaller parts where each of the parts is able to cross the blood-brain barrier because they're so small. Small things tend to sneak across that barrier better than big things. So imagine taking two smaller components that will cross the blood-brain barrier. And once they get into the brain, maybe then they react with each other in a bio-orthogonal reaction to make the larger active medicine in the brain, right? You could imagine something like that. And, and we've certainly contemplated ideas like that. No one to my knowledge has brought that kind of an idea to reality yet, but I think it's a really great problem for us to work on. Yeah. Let's bring in another question. Annie in Palo Alto, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. In the last 121 years, only 60 women have won the Nobel Prize since 1901. As a woman in STEM, I'm always thinking about the pipeline problem for women entering and staying in this field. I'm curious, how did you enter the STEM field and how can we encourage more girls and women to enter and stay in the field? Yeah. Thanks so much for that, Annie. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, and it's certainly one I've I've thought about, you know, throughout my career since um you know, even when I was an undergraduate 
college student, you know, and majoring in chemistry, uh, there were very few women um, in my chemistry classes and in that major, and I, I was one of them. And I've found myself in that kind of minoritized situation uh, throughout my career, although the numbers are trending in a very positive direction. And now, at least at the undergraduate and graduate student level, there's pretty good balance of, of genders hmm. in chemistry. Um, but at the at the higher ranks, right, when you get to professors um, or senior leaders in biopharmaceutical companies or chemical companies, that's when the, the gender balance breaks down entirely and the, and the number of women that you see represented in those leadership positions is still very small. And, and yes, I think, um, I think I am the eighth woman to win mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize in chemistry and that's out of hundreds of Nobel Prizes. So it's a, it's a pretty, we're, we're a small and somewhat rarefied group still today. Um, and you know, you can probably trace the history of those small numbers um, back to, you know, social constructs, right, from the previous century that relegated women to secondary roles in the professional world. Um, and then fast forward to the modern day, I think there are still some cultural and structural problems that dissuade women from staying in the sciences as they progress through their career ladder. So the attrition rates are, are higher for women than they are for men as you go up the ranks. Um, the only thing I can say is, you know, as, as someone who has managed to, to navigate that system and to, to be successful within it, um, you know, a, a person who's able to break through is someone who's probably had a lot of serendipitous interactions with people who were mentors and advocates, which I have enjoyed. Also, I had the privilege of coming from a science family because mm -hmm. my father um, is retired from MIT, where he was a physics professor in nuclear physics. So, you know, I grew up in a household that encouraged myself and my two sisters. So we were an all-girl, you know, family. Um, but we were encouraged to to at least consider science, right, as a as an interest and as a career. And then um, we were sheltered during our childhood, so we were sort of protected from the negative messaging about girls not being good at science and math, which you know maybe other girls of my generation would have heard, but I was sheltered from that. So I didn't actually know <laughs> that people thought that until I was you know, in college practically, um, which allowed me to grow up with a little bit more confidence about my ability to do science. So, so again, I've had so much privilege along the way from my upbringing and, and my, my, the mentors and advocates that went to bat for me and, and helped me be successful. Um, and I think the more people like me that might break through the gauntlet, you know, mm -hmm. if, if we could pay it forward, that will sort of ease the path for other people. And, and I think that the gender parity that we've achieved at the level of students and PhDs, eventually that is going to be reflected in senior professorships and CEOs and chief science officers and companies. And then hopefully, of course, Nobel laureates. Yeah. And if people uh, want to read more on Dr. Bertozzi's thoughts on this, there's a great article that you wrote called Achieving Gender Balance in the Chemistry Professoriate is Not Rocket Science from uh, a few years ago. Um, let's um, bring in Alan in San Francisco. Welcome, Alan. Hi. Um, hello? Hey, yeah, um, you're on. Go ahead. Oh, great. Yeah. So um, I guess um, this is all fascinating. Um I was curious about how one goes from, okay, you've just, you know, this is a new domain for chemical reactions to I have a function that I want to accomplish, perhaps medicinal, or you previously mentioned the marking. Um, 
marking something, but like, how do you, like, how do you go and try and like solve a specific problem in this domain? And yeah, this is a comment. This is so amazingly cool. Thank you so much for sharing all this. <laughs> Thank you, Elon. Well, you know, again, the first goal in my lab that drove the development of the chemistry was to be able to visualize sugars on the surface of cells in living animals, mm -hmm. right? And what we did is, first of all, we invented a bioorthogonal reaction between two different types of molecules. And just, I'll give you some chemistry terms. One of those is called the azide, mm -hmm. and the other was a cyclooctine, mm. okay? So those are two things. And you know what? You can just think of them as A and B, right? And A and B react with each other to make a bond. So they get, a, they get attached together. And that can happen even inside an animal because we tuned the chemistry of A and B so precisely that they will find each other across a crowded room full of other chemicals and bond with each other. So once we had the chemistry worked out, then the next task was applying it to visualize the sugars. And the way we did that was we made a simple sugar that had that chemical A attached to it. And what we found is we could feed that simple sugar to the animals. We did this with some fish actually. <laughs> and the cells in the animal would eat up the simple sugar and put it into the complex sugars on the surface of the cell. And A, which is attached to the simple sugar, just goes along for the ride. And now you've got these chemicals A all over the surface of the cells. And they're just hanging out there, minding their own business, not causing any harm. But then we would add to the animal that chemical B. And B was attached to a light bulb, a little molecular light bulb that shines brightly and you can see it. And as soon as we put in that light bulb with B on it into the same animal, A and B would find each other and do the reaction and attach that light bulb to the cells. And now we were basically seeing the sugars because of the reaction between A and B. And then we could put the fish in a microscope and look at the sugars and see how they move and change and if there's a lot of them or not so much. And we actually did this in zebrafish. And we like zebrafish because it, they're transparent. You can actually see right through them. So it makes it easy to see the sugars right inside the live fish. And we published a paper on that back in 2008. And the pictures were so stunning that the New York Times picked it up. And they actually wrote an article about that paper in the Tuesday you know, science mm -hmm. section of the New York Times with a picture of the head of one of those fish <laughs> with the sugars all lit up in different colors. It was pretty cool. That's so interesting. I yeah. um, We have a good comment for you, or we, we did. I think it actually just... Uh, went away um wanted to ask you about the the perspective applications in the future for these things that's what the comment was was really about was you know where where does this go you know like we've we've heard about different technologies for this kind of targeting of drugs um and what would you know where do you, where do you think it ends up leading us well i think it's pretty clear to me that bioorthogonal chemistry's next big chapter will be in clinical translation, as we call it. So that's where you, know, you invent something in the laboratory with the intent that it will help you know, people, help treat people with diseases and improve human health. 
And then, you know, if all goes well, eventually you start doing the research in human clinical trials for, pe for people who have certain diseases and you want to test your molecules or your technology in those people. And, and right now, the field of bioorthogonal chemistry is undergoing that kind of translation. Mm -hmm. So as a case in point, um, the very first bioorthogonal reaction to be performed in a human cancer patient, has that's, that has now taken place in the hands of a biotech company here in the Bay Area um, uh, that I serve as an advisor of. Mm. And what they've done is, so they're, they're trying to treat patients that have a certain type of bone cancer. And what they do is they inject into the area of the cancer, um, they inject a material that has a bioorthogonal chemical on it. And that material just sits there and doesn't hurt the patient. It's just kind of surrounding that tumor environment. Then in the second step, they infuse into that same patient a toxic drug. It's a chemotherapy drug that has been masked with another bioorthogonal functional group. Okay. So A is on this material hanging around in the tumor and B is now masking this drug. And so the drug with the mask on it floats around in the body. It doesn't harm you, doesn't make you sick, nothing bad happens. But the moment that masked drug encounters that material that's in the tumor, A and B react with each other and release the drug right there at mm. very high doses, right in the tumor. And so this is a really great way of putting a ton of drug on the tumor to kill it without exposing the entire human body to the toxic effects of that drug. And the hope is that these bone cancer patients can be treated without the lethal risk, right, of a very toxic drug. And that's happening right now. So there is bioorthogonal chemistry happening in humans. And to me, that kind of opens the door to this whole next chapter where we can think creatively about what other kinds of diseases can we treat? What kinds of new diagnostic tools can we create? Um, and maybe there's ways that we can really improve human health in the future with this chemistry. Got to be exciting alongside this Nobel Prize to also have that milestone um, happening out there in the world. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Carolyn Bertozzi, professor at Stanford University. She just won the 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Thanks again and congratulations again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Earlier, we were joined by John Clauser, winner of the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been your uh, latest edition of Ask a Nobel Laureate, which we love doing because we have so many in this wonderful Bay Area science and technology community here. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.